Hello, and welcome to this FRDH podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. In 1855, the world was invited to Paris for the Universal Exposition. The wonders of French civilization were to be put on display. Arts, industry, and the fruits of French soil. Emperor Napoleon III, nephew of the original, had a small branding problem. How would the millions expected to attend be able to tell which French wines were the best? Leave it to the salespeople in the grand hall of the exposition, and some very ordinary wine might be sold as the good stuff. The emperor understood that this would have a knock-on effect on the reputation of French wine, not just a potable symbol of the superiority of French culture, but also a major export. He commissioned the Wine Merchant Association of the Bordeaux region to come up with a classification system of their products. They did, classifying 58 chateaux from first to fifth growth. And without imperial intervention, Burgundy followed suit almost immediately. And with a few additions and corrections, the classification system still holds, as the prices of first growths like Chateau Latour and Chateau Margaux demonstrate. Now, the reason I'm off on this tangent is I think the time has come to have a similar coming together of journalistic authorities to classify and codify the political terminology used in mainstream news media. Actually, classifying MSM would be useful as well. In the American context, mainstream news refers to the New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, major networks, and so on. But it is past time to acknowledge that Fox News and Breitbart are also first growths or premier crew. They have every bit as much influence on American society as the previously named traditional organs. The definitions of left or right, liberal or conservative, have been stretched beyond meaning. The application of the prefix neo to any of those words doesn't add much clarity. Simple example, this headline on an op-ed piece by conservative columnist Brett Stevens in a recent edition of the New York Times. On Venezuela, where are the liberals? The inference of the question is that liberals do not criticize the leadership in Venezuela because it is left-wing. Aside from the fact that it betrays how narrowly Brett Stevens reads, most people I know who are liberals and write for the mainstream media have long since despaired of the Venezuelan leadership. Stevens cherry-picks a few liberals who in their time endorsed the Bolivarian Revolution. Usual conservative suspects, really. Sean Penn, Naomi Klein, Glenn Greenwald, none of whom I would call liberal, and I suspect they would bristle at being called liberal as well. Stevens conflates the idea of liberal with the left, which is historically inaccurate, and I suspect he knows that. The classification confusion in the media, and more broadly in Anglo-American society, is primarily centered on that word, liberal. On either side of the Atlantic, for that matter, wherever English is spoken, liberal means whatever the speaker says it means, although that is often not what the hearer thinks it means. In America, neoconservatives call themselves neoliberals when it comes to economic theory. They advocate liberal interventionism in foreign policy. Liberals in Britain find the phrase liberal intervention to be an oxymoron and cringe at the very idea of intervening in another country's affairs, no matter how vicious the regime. Tell an American that the Liberal Party is in power in Australia, and the last thing they will think is that it is a party slightly to the right of the Ronald Reagan-era Republican Party. 
I have no idea what Rush Limbaugh's and Fox News core audience made of Margaret Thatcher's Tory party going into a coalition with the liberal Democrats. I mean, first of all, for most of them, that would be a redundant name. For them, liberal equals Democrat. Liberal has historically had a flexible meaning. Today, nationalism is resurgent and most liberals are aghast. But oddly, it was a liberal cause in the 19th century. Europe in the mid-19th century was still divided up into kingdoms and duchies made of sprawling, non-contiguous territories, creating nation-states with some semblance of democratically elected governments became a liberal cause. In order to unite the people of a nation against the old hereditary order, liberals argued for nationalism, how to achieve liberal goals. In 1848, revolutions swept across Europe. Their goals were, by and large, liberal. People wanted clear national borders, and they wanted to be able to trade freely across them. These revolutions were bloody at first, and so, for some, liberal became closely linked with radical. The revolutions ended in failure, but within two decades, most of the liberal principles that had been fought for had become common and enshrined in constitutions. Modern Germany and Italy had been created. Strong national movements in smaller countries were thriving. But most of all, by the middle of the 19th century, liberalism meant free trade. Certainly that's what it meant for Britain's Liberal Party, which tore itself out of the Conservative, the Tory party, shortly after the events of 1848. And over on the other side of the Atlantic, the word was not in use quite yet, but a massive wave of immigrants from Europe, fleeing the economic conditions that liberalism was not strong enough to fix, arrived in America. A new party, the Republican Party, was founded in 1854 and drew immediate support from these immigrants. The Republicans were against the slavery that underpinned the economy of the American South. And here's another source of the modern confusion. The South was against tariffs, a liberal position, free trade and all, but it was willing to fight to the death over the right to maintain slavery, as illiberal a position as it is possible to imagine. Anyway, from that moment to the present, the word has been bathed in controversy. Nationalism is considered illiberal now. Liberals in America are starting to question free trade because it costs American workers their jobs. Maybe the word liberal can no longer stand on its own. Perhaps it's a weakness of the English language. Our language is wonderful for all manner of expression, but on this it lacks subtlety. German might be more useful here. We could have compound nouns, running words together to form a single word that conveys one specific meaning. Social liberal, say, or free trade liberal might add clarity. And even better might be social liberal as long as it advances the interests of my ethnic group or free trade liberals, so long as it makes me rich, and if not, then I'm protectionist. I love the German language. I think I should study it. Well, anyway, it really is confusing, although perhaps the real transatlantic confusion is not over the meaning of the word liberal, but over the meaning of the word conservative. Former British Prime Minister David Cameron, a conservative, is, by the current American usage of the word, a liberal. He accepts the basic science surrounding climate change theories and is an advocate of gay rights. He has even called himself, on occasion, a progressive. I grew up in the 50s and 60s in a household pledged to the New Deal faith. 
a secular religion shared by all the Jewish families living in our suburb. It wasn't until high school that I met conservatives. I knew people who were Republicans, but that wasn't the same thing. I was introduced to the thinking of William F. Buckley, founding father of modern American conservatism. Come to think of it, I was introduced to the man himself when he gave a talk at my high school. I asked him about his advocacy of obedience to government. It was 1968, and there was music in the cafes at night and revolution in the air. And he condescended to me in his answer as if I were liberal raw meat brought for him to feast on on his television program, Firing Line. Read Plato's Crito. Read Plato's Crito, he said in his faux British accent. It's all in there. I did as he asked. It wasn't all in there. Anyway, Buckley's conservatism morphed into movement conservatism. Movement is a euphemism for ideologically rigid, which is a far cry from the pragmatic, rational conservatism that in theory underpinned Buckley and his National Review magazine. The ideology was based in tax cuts and rolling back the entire New Deal and America's regulatory framework to the status quo ante the day before the Wall Street crash not of 2008, but of 1929, the goal, small government, low deficits. But since Donald Trump became president, it's clear that conservatism is actually not about that at all. I won't go on, because even as I speak, I'm getting confused, which is why I'm asking for a classification-clarification conference. We don't have anything in the Anglo-American world that matches the Académie Française for deciding matters linguistic, but we do have journalism schools and institutions funded by the great legacy journalistic entities. It could be a transatlantic event. Steve Call, dean of Columbia School of Journalism, could organize it, and the Reuters Institute at Oxford could join in via video link to provide a British perspective. This wouldn't be an idle talking shop. The editors of the Associated Press Stylebook would take part and take notes and come up with very precise usages which could then filter through, hopefully, into general discourse. If nothing else, in these very confusing times, we could figure out who is a real liberal, who is a real conservative, and come up with a more distinctive nomenclature for the complicated combinations of the two in between. And that's all for this FRDH podcast. I'm only being partly facetious about this. If you like the idea of achieving greater clarity about the use of conservative and liberal in the news media, drop me a line and I will pass the thoughts along to Columbia School of Journalism and the Reuters Institute. And the way you drop me a line is by visiting the website www.goldfarbpod.com and while you're there, you can make a donation to keep these podcasts coming.